everybody. This is Kelly from Two Broads Talking Politics. I'm here today with my good friend Jessica Neptune. Jessica's here to talk to us about the Bard Prison Initiative. So hello, Jessica. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. And can you tell us what your title is? <laughs> I am the Associate Director of National Programs, and I direct the Bard Prison Initiative Chicago office. All right. Fantastic. So I have wanted Jessica to come on since pretty much since we started this podcast, because I think what BPI is doing is really interesting. And so can you start by telling us just what is Bard Prison Initiative? Sure. Well, Bard College, which is a small liberal arts college in upstate New York, about 90 miles north of New York City, is one of only a handful of colleges and universities around the country that offers its degrees in prison. There's a growing number of schools doing that, but it's still a relatively small handful. And so there are about 300 students who are full-time Bard students incarcerated in six prisons around where Bard is located in upstate New York, going to Bard full-time. So we have satellite campuses in all of those six prisons. Those are both medium and maximum security prisons, five men's prisons and one women's prison. And professors from Bard go in to those prisons and teach the same classes that they teach on campus, the same syllabi, the same level of rigor and expectation. Students are admitted first into an associate's degree program, and then if they have the time and the interest, can go on and get a Bard bachelor's degree. And so it's the same Bard curriculum, the same kind of Bard education, everything from first-year seminar and language and thinking that first-year students do on campus, all the way through to senior project, which is at Bard the capstone of a, a, a BA. That's been happening now for 15 years. It was something that I helped start when I was an undergraduate at Bard in the late 1990s, and it has grown into this program over the past 15 years, so that now there have been over 800 students enrolled, over 450 students have been released, and are out doing all kinds of amazing things. We can talk about that later. And we now have sort of grown from just that core college operation to having an entire apparatus dedicated to reentry and what we think of as alumni. Um, so a whole host of things going on, particularly in New York City, around alumni. And then we have a consortium for the liberal arts in prison, which was started nine or ten years ago as Bard grew as big as it was able to having 300 incarcerated students with a main campus student population of about 2,000 was really as big as the college could get. And so the way to further impact the field and, and expand was to help other colleges and universities develop their own programs based on their own credits and their own degrees and their own undergraduate curriculums with colleges and universities all over the country. And so we now have nine or ten partners, started with Grinnell College in Iowa and Wesleyan University in Connecticut, Goucher in Maryland outside of Baltimore, grow to include Notre Dame and the College of Holy Cross in Indiana, Washington University in St. Louis, FEPS, which is the Freedom Education Project of Puget Sound out in Washington State, just in the past year, really since I've signed on, come back to, to the Bard Prison Initiative. We've brought on Bennington College in Vermont, the University of Vermont, Emerson College in Boston, and Yale University through Dwight Hall at Yale. You said there's a consortium for liberal arts, and so all of these programs are part of the consortium. What does that mean to be part of the consortium? What sorts of things are they working on together? What sorts of things remain separate for the different universities? All of these programs were started 
with the assistance of the folks at BARD who launched the BARD Prison Initiative. And so there has been a great deal of really hands-on technical assistance, in-person advising, both on the university end, where you're developing a proposal and, and going through the often very complicated process of getting that approved all the way up, and really making sure that you're developing a proposal and a, and a pilot project that reflects that university's you know, kind of approach to undergraduate education in the same way that BPI reflects BARDS. So it looks different in each place, but that kind of core principle of, of bringing to the prison exactly what you do on campus is a shared principle. The protecting and maintaining the integrity and the rigor of that college's degree and, and credentials, and then working with the Department of Corrections so that you can create the kind of space you need for college to thrive within the prison environment. So there's a lot of hands-on technical assistance. In the early years, BPI had seed money to really help launch these programs financially, and, and money is always the thing that really you know <laughs> allows a program to happen or not. And then there's just kind of a continued relationship, continued levels of support and kind of, a, you know, community of practice, as, as some people say, in terms of, you know, providing ongoing logistical or, or technical assistance kind of support. And so that's on the kind of mechanical side. And then I would say that this is a consortium of educators who are approaching college and prison with a shared set of principles. And so that really has to do with a commitment to the liberal arts. I think all of these programs as they reflect the, the curriculum of their home institution, all attempt to bring into the prison the full depth and breadth of the liberal arts in the, in the, in the way that it exists on campus to the prison as much as possible. And those sort of high standards of, of expectations and rigor. And then the other thing I think that, you know, these programs all really have in common is a rejection of some of the things that very typically are assumed either about college and prison specifically or about um, expanding access to higher education more broadly, the kind of process of democratizing higher education. And so in particular, I think there's very often an assumption that if you have what I think of as sort of radical inclusiveness at the front end, trying to make sure that as many people as possible can find their way into the classroom or at least find themselves eligible to apply to attend the college. Um, if you have that kind of openness and inclusiveness at the front end and really are sort of rejecting some of the ways in which typical higher ed application processes really reproduce privilege more than our means to kind of identify a potential. So if you're rejecting that, then the assumption often is that the trade-off in doing that is that you have to lower expectations on the back end. So you, so you brought in the kind of front door, but you then must not expect as much of, of the students who are um, being brought into your program. And we, I think, across the consortium really reject that assumption and instead have really high expectations and strong ambitions. And, and those are shared ambitions. Our students have, have very high ambitions for what's possible. And I think that that's something that's a challenge both to the field of higher ed, as more and more circles are thinking about inclusive excellence and expanding access, um, but it's also a challenge to the field of criminal justice. So our students um, 
are defying expectations in all kinds of ways. And I think very pervasively there are very low expectations for what people coming out of prison are capable of doing, should be doing. The kinds of pipelines that we think of that send people to prison too often, reform efforts are kind of creating pipelines for people returning home too, as if there's only a couple things that are expected of people to do or sort of reasonable, prudent to be imagining as possible. And so we really reject a kind of dampering down on any kind of expectations about what's possible. And so how do programs join the consortium or what is the typical, if there is a typical path (laughs) to that? Is this something, is the consortium going to schools and asking if they'd be interested? Are schools coming to you? What does that look like? You know, it's looked different over the years. This is something that's just sort of grown organically. The first couple of schools that joined, there were undergraduates at those schools who knew that BPI started as an undergraduate organization. So they kind of petitioned us to work with them so that they could think about how to push their schools to do the same thing that we did at Bard. There have been other instances where people who, while they were in graduate school, for example, the the woman who donated the very first check to BPI was a graduate student at Columbia at the time. As soon as she got tenure at Washington University, she called up BPI and said, you know, I'd like to start teaching inside. And they began to actually think about, well, how about instead of just teaching, how about you start a degree program? Another student who was at Bard when I was at Bard as an undergraduate, when she got tenure at Emerson, wanted to start the Emerson Prison Initiative. So sometimes it's something like that. Indiana was an interesting example where they're one of the few states that had state-level funding for college and prison programs. And with the recession, they were going to lose that funding. And so it began as a partnership between the Department of Corrections and BPI to save college and prison in the face of the loss of public funding. And so that was an instance where BPI sort of sought out an academic partner and went knocking on Notre Dame's door, essentially, and said, we'd like to do this. So so it happens differently in different places. As I have started the Bard Prison Initiative Chicago office, the vision there has been partly to serve as a hub of support for all of the programs that are happening in the Midwest already, but also because we have aims to create new programs all over the Midwest, in Illinois, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, and perhaps new programs in addition to the ones that already exist in Indiana and in Iowa. And so sometimes that does include us you know, going around and shopping this idea to faculty who very often have never thought about teaching in a prison. It's not their thing at all, but are maybe intrigued by the thought of teaching in a different kind of college environment. I want to go back to something you said about Bard's program, that it had five men's prisons and one women's prison currently. And so is that something that you're looking at, that discrepancy in numbers, you know, five men's prisons, one women's prison? And what does that look like in thinking about that? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because my big initiative for 2018 is going to be a focus on women's education, college education for women in prison. And so part of that is actually, I think, building on the strength of what Bard and the consortium has done. So one thing to know about 
prisons in general and incarceration in America in general is that the vast majority of people in prison are men. So in New York, in fact, only 4% of um, people in prison are women and about 10% of BPI students are women. So even though we're in one prison, we have an overrepresentation in terms of, of the larger prison population. And then the consortium also, I think about 35% of all people enrolled in the various colleges across the consortium are women, and about 18% of people in prison nationally are women. So there's already some strength in what we are currently doing. Two programs, FEPS in Washington and University of Vermont, are exclusively dedicated to women. And several other programs, including BARD, have college in both men's and women's prisons. And so on the one hand, there's the sort of strength of what we've been doing so far. And on the other hand, there's an incredible need. Women are one of the fastest growing segments of the prison population. Women have been particularly hard hit by the policies of mass incarceration, the, the most punitive policies, including mandatory minimum sentences. Women's prisons tend to be far more underserved and have far less programs and activities than men's prisons do. The majority of women in prison have experienced abuse, either sexual or violent or otherwise, and have histories of trauma. And so the majority of reform efforts that are going on right now are recognizing that truth and doing a lot of effort to increase what they call trauma-informed care and gender-responsive trauma-informed care. And so while that's addressing a real need, education is almost never a part of those conversations. When we only focus on the needs around trauma, we also run the risk of imagining that women in prison are broken, damaged, and in need of treatment, full stop period, rather than scholars and leaders, right? Over the last couple of years, there have been a series of these sort of discrepancies that you that you were sort of gesturing to that have been really alarming to me. Before this job, I had a postdoc with the Obama administration's Federal Interagency Reentry Council, and so that Second Chance Pell was announced during the time that I was working with the Reentry Council. And people who were working in the, the federal prison system were really struck that no college programs were going into the women's federal system at all. More recently, women in Indiana have lost the only college program that existed in Indiana. In Illinois, there is no college prison to speak of for women prison. And so there is a real need to do more uh, specifically for women. And so this initiative is going to focus on returning college to the Indiana women's prison where there once was a thriving program and no longer is, bringing college hopefully uh, for the first time to women in Illinois, and then ideally banding access to education for women in the federal system. So that takes a lot of organizing effort to put the pieces in place to bring new university partners on board. And then, you know, really it takes a lot of fundraising to pay for those programs. So you've mentioned a little bit about the pieces of your background that have led you to this role. So you said that you were involved at the beginning of the bringing BARD into prisons, and then you just talked about your postdoc, but could you expand a little bit about what your background is, why this is something that interests you to work on? As I mentioned, I was an undergraduate 
at Bard when the Prison Initiative first started as an undergraduate organization. This was the late 1990s. It was the height of kind of tough on crime politics that was really bipartisan tough on crime at that time. This was Rudy Giuliani's New York. Amadou Diallo had just been shot and killed by the police, 41 bullets. And so, you know, I was a part of a group of undergraduates who were realizing that what we then called the prison industrial complex, we didn't then have the language of mass incarceration, was really sort of the social justice issue of our time. And that was something that activities around BPI really made central for me, but it also was something that I was kind of piecing together as I tried to understand my own life, arriving in college, having had many people in my own family serve time in prison, having people I grew up with who were in jail, facing felony charges, and not completing high school as I was starting college. And, you know, thinking a lot about the ways in which, you know, it could have easily been reversed. You know, I could have easily been the one in that jail cell, and they could have easily been the one thriving on a college campus. And really, you know, it was luck that made that difference. And so that was really strong on my mind at the time and made getting involved in the prison initiative really resonate for me. And the work I did with BPI then kind of spilled into the classroom. So I began to realize that the questions I was asking about my own family and about you know my experiences, which I had been framing mostly as issues around power and privilege and race and class also, you know, could really be understood through the lens of the justice system and incarceration as being part of a kind of causal effect. And so thinking about incarceration suddenly as something that has a sociology to it that can explain my family beyond, you know, just having a kind of weird, crazy family, which I did, but that there's a bigger sociology to plug that into. And of course, that this has a long history. So beginning to understand that and thinking about it as something to pursue academically. And so as I completed college, the first cohort of BPI students had been admitted. It was a a cohort of 15 students who were just doing credit level work. We hadn't started the degree program yet. And that's where it was when I left and I came to graduate school um, at the University of Chicago and pursued a PhD in American history. And from the very moment I started graduate school, I knew that I wanted to write a dissertation about the origins of mass incarceration and really understand how we got here. So, you know, everything that I had done at BPI completely shaped my professional trajectory and my academic interests. So that's what I did. I completed a dissertation called The Making of the Carceral State. And then once that was done, you know, and that was really a history of policy and politics. And so then I had the opportunity to do a postdoc in D.C., housed at Health and Human Services, but really working across all of federal government and with the White House on this reentry council and got to really kind of see how policy happens at the highest levels when you're really in the room having those conversations and making those decisions. And so when I did that, I learned a lot. But one of the things that became clear very fast was that what I believed to be true as a 20-year-old was actually spot on, which is that if you're talking about the back end of criminal justice reform, if you're talking about um, everything that happens after sentencing and the things that send people to prison, there's nothing more impactful than education, and in particular college education. And that BPI and the 15 years that I had been gone had flourished into this incredible initiative that looking at the national landscape was really peerless um, in terms of its success and its ambition and peerless in terms of being really paradigm shattering and being paradigm shattering 
in terms of what I saw across even the best kind of re-entry work being done, the organizations that were getting always invited to the events and, you know, getting all the grants, there still seemed to very often be a pervasive cynicism, again, about who's in prison and what's possible and what our expectations, whether we are policymakers or practitioners or educators or just fellow citizens, what our expectations should be. And so through that work, I really decided that I wanted to come back to the work of college and prison, and in particular, working with BARD and the consortium to help spread this model and do, you know, really ambitious, high-level academic work in new prisons across the country. And so let's talk about what it looks like for the students who are in the prisons, what it looks like on the ground, how, how they get into these programs. So first, what does the application process look like? What are the requirements for admission and, mm-hmm. and how are they? How are the students who are going to be part of this chosen? Really, the only requirement for admission is to have the high school equivalency, uh, you know, high school diploma or GD. And so anyone with that can apply. And the application process is a two-part process. It starts with an essay, which is really a kind of reading response. They choose between excerpts from passages from you know the kinds of academic texts that they are going to be reading as college students, and they write a response. Um, and you know, faculty from the college read all of those handwritten essays and select students, not based on you know perfect grammar and you know excellent understanding of the larger context of that particular passage. But really, you know, there's an effort to try to replicate, I think, what's what are the best features of higher education admissions processes generally. And so students who are chosen from their essays are invited to do a two-on-one interview. And so, you know, each each applicant meets with two faculty and, you know, it's another opportunity to explore um, potential in in ways that, you know, has nothing to do with SAT scores and extracurricular activities and all the kinds of things that typically make up a a college admissions process. And then what do the courses themselves look like? How much time are students spending in the classroom? How, what's the length of, you know, semesters or, or whatever that might look like? And what kinds of classes are they doing? So we replicate what what happens on campus as closely as possible. So, you know, freshmen come to Bard a month early and do what's called language and thinking or what we call L&T. So that's the first thing that students in prison do as well. Classes are always in person. So faculty drive to the prisons and there are classrooms within the prisons that are Bard classrooms, you know, and there's, there's a library and a computer lab. Prisons typically have, you know, various modules. So, you know, there'll be a morning module and an afternoon module and an evening module, and there'll be classes that go on in all three of those. There'll also be time for study hall, time for, you know, time in the computer lab, time to do academic advising. Students are full-time students, so in addition to a full course load, they are often doing extracurricular activities as well. The debate team is probably the most well-known. They beat Harvard a couple years ago, and that <laughs> became a, a major international news story. So there are, you know, there are sort of series of extracurricular activities students do, and then even beyond graduation, beyond degree attainment, if students still have time on their sentences, they remain matriculated with us, and we do post-degree pre-release coursework, often at that point thinking about career specializations. 
are there any limitations to the kinds of courses that students can take or the kind of work that they can do, the kind of research that they can do? Yeah, so I know of no prison that allows the internet. So, you know, there are some limitations. We have computer labs that have limited access networks. So there are a lot of materials uploaded onto the computers. And then students also have access to, for example, all of the JSTOR records. And so if there's something, if there's an article that they want to have access to, they will copy down the citation. And we have undergraduates from the main campus who are research assistants and who will go, you know, download those articles or go get books from the main library or go, you know, put in a request for interlibrary loan. So we do what we can to get around the limitations of not having the internet. Some faculty may tell you that student papers are more interesting when students really have to rely on books and and don't have the internet. There are some science labs that are hard to do in prison. Some of it can be simulated on the computers, but some of it can't be done in prison. So there are only a handful of things that we've found we can't do. You know, we do art. We bring in all kinds of equipment for community gardens. Part of that has to do with being a program in its 15th year, having, you know, developed slowly over time the ability to have some of those kinds of concessions. And then there are things that students haven't been able to do inside that we very purposefully kind of plan around so that they can complete that on the outside. So students who are doing particular kinds of science that require labs have held off on completing their senior project until they are released and then they come to campus and can use the labs there and complete their research after they're out. What are some examples of majors that students have done or senior projects that they've worked on? Oh, I wish I had brought our course catalog. It's, it's my favorite thing to show people so they can really see what it is that we do. Um, it's a thick, beautiful course catalog. And of course, you know, it covers the, the full range of the liberal arts. So, you know, the humanities and the social sciences, languages and literature, the, the studio arts, the natural sciences, mathematics. A large percentage of our students are math majors. And senior projects, you know, I, I wish I had the memory to, to be able to, to list them off for you. You know, as senior projects reflect a genuine BARD education. So they look very similar to the list of senior projects that you see in the graduation booklet on the main campus. So these are really impressive academic capstones to an undergraduate education. So one thing we've mentioned a couple of times here is that the BARD education and the education that students receive throughout the consortium is a liberal arts education. And so there are people who might make an argument that in prisons you should be teaching students sort of more practical mm. job-based skills. What is your response to that? What is the, the reason for using the liberal arts model? Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, a part of a larger argument and and debate that's happening in higher ed in general, right? That the liberal arts are in some circles under attack or, you know, that there's been a push much more broadly to, you know, what, what are thought of as more practical kinds of majors. And so I think that what we do at Bard, we do because that's what Bard does. Bard is a liberal arts college. But the work of the prison initiative, I think, plugs us into a larger debate where where BPI actually is, I think, a, a shining example of why liberal arts education is so valuable and you know can play a role in this larger conversation about you know, the point of the liberal arts being not somehow divorced from practical 
career-oriented kinds of training, right? We think of somehow that there's there's career training and then there's the liberal arts as if these are dichotomous. And, you know, that I think that many people with a liberal arts education fully understand that that's, that's, that's not at all the case. I mentioned kind of career track work that students do, both post-degree pre-release and also alongside their coursework. You know, I think that those examples are really illustrative of why that larger debate kind of creates a false dichotomy. So, you know, the first one that we created was in public health, and that came out of student interest in in public health. Students, even before they had become BARD students, had been involved in peer education work around AIDS and HIV inside. So it came out of student interest. It was a really fantastic place to respond to and push back on this notion that, you know, vocational, so-called vocational training is what people in prison should be doing. Because here you have students who are taking courses in anthropology and political science and sociology and history that speak to issues around public health. And then they're doing training with the Mailman School of Public Health and Columbia professors from Columbia are coming up and doing public health work. And so it's that marriage between the traditional liberal arts and career-oriented training. And it speaks to our students' passions and ambitions toward social justice, toward coming out and doing work in the communities, giving back and um, making a positive impact in the community. What are some of the things that students have done after graduation. So now you're getting into, uh, I think, what's a really fun and exciting part of the conversation. We now have over 450 released students, and, and we consider anyone who gets out of prison, whether they've completed a degree with us or not, as alumni. There's a really robust alumni network. Students who are released who have not finished a degree with us inside go on and complete their degrees on the outside. They've gone into over 35 different colleges and universities, mostly in the Northeast, and that's both at the undergraduate and graduate level. So students are going on and getting masters in public health, masters in social work and other things. We have an epidemiologist at the New York City Public Health Department. Students are translating internships into permanent positions at organizations like the Ford Foundation. Students are leaders in criminal justice reform and are spearheading innovative new programs at local community organizations. They are rising up the chain in businesses and hiring people behind them who are getting out of prison. They're going into urban farming and urban sustainability and and environmental justice fields. They're doing coding and data analysis. They are working as community health workers in clinics or doing research for hospitals. They're making art, you know, so they are reflective of the kinds of things that you expect BARD students, BARD alumni to be doing. And is that the major way that you would measure the success of the program? Yeah, I really think that's exactly right. Very often college and prison programs are evaluated strictly by the students' recidivism rates. BPI students have a very low recidivism rate. Uh, it's it's 2.5% for people who have completed a degree with us. But I think what you said is exactly right, that w- we really think about measuring success in ways that are similar to how any of us would think about, did we go to a good college? The idea of, did it work, strikes me as, as so strange. No one has ever asked me if my college education worked. Yes, thinking about the kinds of scholarly engagement that students do, I think, is a measure of success. Faculty often report that their students inside are some of the most 
intellectually curious and ambitious students that they've had. So you can think about success in those kinds of ways. And then I think thinking about the kinds of careers and lives that students build post-release is, is certainly another way to think about that. And how is this program funded? In 1994, there was a crime bill, a federal crime bill, that made people in prison ineligible for Pell Grants. And that really stripped away public funded college and prison programs, both at the federal and the state level. So states sort of followed suit after the federal Pell dollars were rescinded. And so college and prison was actually really quite common before 1994 across the country. When public money disappeared, prison programs basically shut down overnight almost. And so when BARD started up in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there were very few programs and we were completely privately funded. We've been completely privately funded through foundations and individual donations for the first 14 years. It was just last year that Bard and many other schools first uh, received federal money again through the Second Chance Pell Initiative that I had mentioned earlier, which is an experimental, they call them experimental sites. Basically, the Secretary of Education has the authority to allow Pell eligibility for populations that typically are barred through legislation through what they call an experimental site. So 67 colleges across the country got this designation as as being a second chance Pell site and were able to get federal Pell dollars through that. There's a a new program in New York this past year through the district attorney's office that also is, is, is basic public money going into college and prison. So Bard now for the very first time has some public money, but it's primarily private. And that's really the case very typically across the country. There are a couple states that have some state-level money for college and prison work. It's very rare. And very rarely are you going to get a university willing to fund the program itself. So most of the programs that are in the consortium are funded primarily, if not exclusively, with private money. And now um, a little bit of a blend with, with some of the Second Chance Pell money. And do you accept donations from individuals if any of our (laughs) listeners would be interested? Yes, we absolutely accept donations. This program cannot exist without the private money that supports it. And so much of that private money comes from individual donors. So every year it's sort of an existential question, you know, what we're going to be able to do. And so you can go to the website bpi.bar.edu and follow the links to make a donation. It's tax deductible. It goes through the college. And we'll put a link to that up on our website. Great. Thanks so much. Is there anything else that you want to be sure that our listeners know about the BPI initiative, about the consortium, about your women's education initiative? When I was describing the consortium and the work, one of the things I didn't mention was last year we brought four new programs on, but I went back and counted and we consulted with, largely through phone calls, 21 different colleges and universities around the country, largely professors who called us up and were either, you know, just sort of thinking about starting a program and curious or maybe in the very first few steps and wanted to talk through some things. So that's actually a large part of what we do, where we spend some, some serious staff time. And even as this year, I think we are kind of committing ourselves to deepening the existing programs and, and kind of strategically expanding in, in a couple core places, we always welcome those kinds of conversations. You know, I can talk about this all day, as Kelly is probably well aware at this point. So faculty 
who are interested can find us on the website. There's a consortium page on the website and email consortium at bard.edu. And, you know, we're happy to field questions and, and talk about the work. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Jessica. This has been a really good conversation and I'm excited to learn more about what you do. And I think that our listeners will be really interested in this as well. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Our theme music is called Sweeter Vermouth and was composed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. It is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Our logo was created by Matthew Wefflin, expressly for Two Broads Talking Politics, and is copyright 2017. You can contact us at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com or at twobroadstalk on Twitter. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Please let us know if you have any trouble finding us.